as we discussed last week, we'll start each week with a brief, just a little hit the highlights from the week prior, and um, then move into new uh, material. It's also nice when I do the review, if questions come up, you know, in the, in the middle of a week, I think of other things I wanted to add. It's kind of nice to have that built in. So um, last week we started with Noah. He's not on there. I'm leaving that there, so I won't go to the next slide, slide just yet. But last week we began with Noah, and we recognized that in the midst of an immensely sinful, wicked generation, all the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. That's how this generation was described. Completely evil generation, one man was found blameless, righteous, and walking with God, and that was Noah. And he was basically chosen by God to uh, build this ark, and we moved right into the key event, which was the worldwide flood, a catastrophic flood that lasted just over a year from the first raindrop all the way till Noah and his family got to exit the ark. And then we came to understand the relationships of God's judgment in sending the flood, his salvation in providing an ark, and then the establishment of capital punishment after the flood. Uh, God basically says, um, by, if a man's blood is shed by man, that man's blood should be shed. And we talked about that was based on not man's sinfulness or depravity, but the sanctity of life and the fact that humans are created in God's holy image. Now, he's not here tonight, so I can't pick on him. But my husband, David, who I don't know who invited to join this class, uh, brought up a question uh, after we finished our flood section, or maybe at the end of class, last week, about wanting me to point to a specific verse that backed up my assumption or my assertion that the earth had not seen rain prior to the flood. And as I answered him last week, there is not one verse that says, when it started raining at the flood, nobody had seen rain before. There is a verse that, like that does not exist in Scripture. But there are three passages that we're going to read really briefly, and I'm just going to make a comment or two that I think build a case that most likely the earth, the climate of the earth was very different and probably did not involve rain prior to the flood. You can listen to these uh, passages and make some notes and do further research study on your own and come up with your own conclusion. I don't think it's a hill to die on, but um, I believe that there wasn't rain prior to the flood, so we'll talk about that. So who has Genesis 2, 4 to 6? Okay. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Thank you. So the first part of this passage, this is basically the conclusion of creation up until the creation of man and woman. And um, a lot of people read that, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, and say, wait a minute, I thought plants were already created. This means there was not yet new growth. Plants had been created by God, plumped in the ground, and, however he did it, and, but no new growth had taken place because it says there was no one to cultivate it. We, knew that, we know that God later created Adam and put him in the garden to cultivate and to tend to the Garden of Eden. The, the part that I wanted to focus on, obviously, for my case about the no rain, is at the end, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And so the idea of kind of a greenhouse effect, it, it, water comes from, you know, seeps up from the ground, 
there's a bit of evaporation, some condensation, kind of a, you know, wash, rinse, repeat cycle, but no like actual rain as we would understand rain. So more of a heavy, uh, humid, and, uh, humid climate where plants and animals got the water that they needed. And, and some people would say, well, this was just how it was before Adam and Eve showed up, but there's nothing in scripture that says this mist changed. There's, there's no other mention of climactic changes really until we get to the flood. So I would assert that this was how it was at the beginning and remained basically this way until the time of the flood. Uh, the second passage is Genesis 9, 12 to 16. Who has that? God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the water become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Thank you. So God institutes the appearance of the rainbow in the sky. And if you, if you listen to that passage, it's after the storm comes, after the rain comes, then we see the rainbow. If you were Noah, or one of Noah's sons, or daughters-in-law, or Noah's wife, and you had, let's say, never seen rain before, and then saw a whole lot of it, and were basically, well, were the sole survivors of this catastrophic worldwide year-long flood, would you not be a little apprehensive every time it started to rain? And so I think it wasn't just God saying, well, let me show off, let me just show this cool thing. I think there was a reason why God put a uniquely identifiable uh, sign in the clouds so that after the storm passed, Noah and future generations would be like, okay, it's just a storm, or it's just a sprinkle, or it's just a shower, it's not a flood. So I think that there was a reason behind God's choosing that sign at that particular time. And then the last passage, I think, is probably the strongest for my argument. Maybe the first one, I don't know. But the second, this third one, I think, is pretty strong. And uh, who has Hebrews 7, 11? I have 11, 7. Oh, that's what I meant to say. Sorry, 11, 7. You're exactly right. I said it backwards. By faith, Noah, being divinely born of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Thank you. This verse does not say, by faith Noah being warned to God about how to build an ark. This says, being warned of things not yet seen, therefore he built an ark. And so I, I believe that the things that God showed Noah was that he was going to see, there was going to be rain, that he was going to see amounts of water uh, on the earth from above from below that he had never that he had never could never even fathom and so I think the water and the rain was one of the many things I'm sure that God had warned Noah about and um, I think that Noah's immediate obedience he immediately whatever reservations he might have had he started to work on the ark uh, he and his family got on the ark in obedience and um, I think that his obedience resulted in his salvation, his and his family's salvation from the flood, and also landed him in this uh, Hebrews chapter 11. For those of you who don't know, Hebrews chapter 11 
is sort of referred to as the Faith Heroes Hall of Fame. If you start at verse 1 and read all the way down, lots and lots of Old Testament men and women um, that God recognized as having, ex or that the writer of Hebrews, God inspired that writer, to recognize as having unique faith. And so I think that Noah took on faith what was going to come that would require an ark that he had not yet seen. So I'm not going to belabor that point. Uh, y'all get the idea. I think that it hadn't rained before. So again, y'all can look at your uh, look at these notes, look at these passages. There's a lot online that you can look at as far as resources and make a decision. But um, regardless, obviously, whether it had rained or not, the flood was a very unique situation um, when it came to the amount of rain. From the flood and the uh, key, the key uh, person of Noah, the key relationship with the flood and those relationships, we moved on to Nimrod. We learned that Nimrod was an early leader and a builder of cities that were exceedingly wicked, like Nineveh and Babylon. And then we saw the construction of the Tower of Babel and how men wanted to reach to God, wanted to come together and reach to God, man's attempt to get to God on his own terms. And we said this was basically the beginning of false religions. And then we came to understand God's judgment of man in the confusion of the languages. So he, he came, that he, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, came down, confused their languages. No longer can they cooperate to continue building. And then the, the dispersion of the Gentiles in that now, you know, this pocket understands each other, this pocket understands each other, but they can't, you know, communicate as a whole, so they begin to spread out. So God has to do for them what they were unwilling to do themselves. So that was the Tower of Babel. So from there, we're going to move on to some new content for tonight. And we're going to start with Abraham. Now, Abraham, there is a lot to say about Abraham. And I will barely scratch the surface. This, I would say, is one of the central figures in the Old Testament. So Abraham lived around 2000 B.C., he was originally named Abram, but later God changed his name to Abraham. His wife Sarai was also, also had a name change. She was later named Sarah. And Abraham would become the father of the Jewish nation. So there's one verse I wanted to share that I'll read. I didn't pass this one out. And this one, this one little verse, it seems kind of like it picks up in the middle of a passage, which it kind of does. But I think Genesis 12.4 tells me a little bit about the kind of man Abraham was. And it says, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was now, excuse me, now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The part that I wanted to focus on was, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken. Immediate obedience. That is what marked his life. God said, we're going to learn, we're going to read out loud in a, in a few minutes the, the passage before that where God says, leave your home country, take up, go to a land I'll show you. And what was Abraham's response? Obedience. So not a perfect guy by any stretch, but a man of obedience. So key event here is extremely important, and that is the Abrahamic covenant. And before we can really delve into the Abrahamic covenant, we have to understand a little bit more about God's covenants. God made um, very special covenants with specific individuals in the Bible, usually a man, and his covenants were very different than those made by two individuals. Uh, now, a covenant, what is a covenant? You can just holler out. What is Promise. It? An agreement? What did you say? Promise. Promise? What else? Contract? 
the the Hebrew word from which we get our word covenant means to bind or fetter. So a, 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 an acceptable rendering would be a binding promise or agreement, um, a contract, so to speak. Now, God's covenants, as I said, were different than men's. When two men would make a covenant, typically there were stipulations that... E- expectations or requirements uh, for each of the individuals in the party and if one of them didn't live up to their part then many times the covenant would be null and void that would just kind of dismiss the whole thing or if, if it was a big matter you know an important matter that man might be taken to court but the idea is requirements on both sides God's covenants in the Old Testament many times most of the time stipulated his actions his promises requiring very little from the person with whom the covenant was made. Basically, the the person that received the covenant was just like, okay, sounds good. And so the the, the important thing about that is that God's covenants do not expire. They don't terminate. They don't become null and void based on what men and women do or don't do. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal, and his covenants are eternal. And that's very important as we look through the verses that we just read about Noah. Last week, we learned about some really important covenants. There was a two-part covenant between God and Noah. What was the first part of the covenant? What did God promise not to do ever again? I'm kind of telling you. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, actually, I jumped the gun. The first part of the covenant was, I will provide salvation from the flood for you and your family. And what was the sign of that salvation? Big boat. The ark. Um, so the first part of that, the sign was the ark. The second part was that I will never destroy the earth again by flood. And what was the sign for that? Yeah, rainbow. So that was a two-part covenant. And that is an everlasting covenant. We today see rainbows. And as of yet, God has never destroyed the earth by flood since then. So tonight we're going to learn about the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant is also eternal, everlasting, non no expiration date, non-terminating. So I will hit that home many times because we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So this very important covenant between God and Abraham. Who has Genesis 12, 1 to 3? The Lord has said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curse you, I will curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Thank you. So God comes to Abram and says, I want you to leave, or to leave, leave your homeland, leave your people, leave your family, hit the road uh, to a land that I'm going to show you. Now, I am a planner, and i got to have a GPS, and i got to have a Google map, and i got to have... You know, the whole, I mean, I cannot even imagine in biblical times being told, yeah, I'm just going to show you where. So, it took a whole lot of faith. But God says, go. And we already read uh, Genesis 12, 4, and we know that Abraham went. But in this passage, God promises three main things. And I kind of lumped some of them together. But the first thing that, that God promises Abraham is a land. This is a physical piece of property, a piece of earth. We now know this land as the promised land, Canaan, uh, Israel, the Holy Land. This is land designated to Abraham and his descendants, regardless of what anybody else says. The land belongs to them. Secondly, he promised them, he promised Abraham 
a great nation. This is people, not land. This is, these are individuals, a whole line, a whole crop of people that would come through him, that he would be the, the beginning of this nation. And then he promised a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you all of the peoples of the world will be blessed. Now, we as Gentiles and believers don't necessarily participate in the fact that Abraham, I mean, it doesn't really affect us a whole lot that Abraham was promised the Holy Land or Israel. And it doesn't really affect us a whole lot that God promised Abraham that he would provide this nation, that he would be the father of the Jewish nation. But it does affect us when we read the blessing because this means us and this means now, not just 2000 BC. So I think this affects us individually. I believe that there is no place in the body of Christ for anti-Semitism. There are still individuals that believe that the Jews are of a lesser race that would never say anything positive about Hitler, but tend to look with a disparaging look toward Jews. There is no place for that in the body of Christ because we know from God's word that this is his chosen people. Secondly, this has huge global political ramifications in how our country deals with Israel. I, for one, do not want to be found standing in opposition to the apple of God's eye. And, you know, every time I do this, I'm like, well, there, that's okay. I mean, I say all this, and I'm like, but that's okay, because we're friends with Israel. Good gracious, we are on the precipice of making a deal, well, it's already basically been done, with one of Israel's sworn enemies, people that have said, we want to wipe Israel off the map, and we are aligning ourselves with these individuals. That is not, that's not good, folks. And so I'm not telling you who to vote for or what to do, but we need to be in prayer because our country could be in violation of the Abrahamic covenant. It is in a place where we are cursing, we are bringing about curses and trouble to the apple of God's eye. So some of y'all are just dying to say something, I can tell. Lynn's over there just like, were you going to say something? I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I mean, again, I don't want to get into the whole political arena, but this is important stuff. What was done in 2000 BC has huge ramifications for us in 2015. I find that mind-boggling, and I find that when people say, oh, the scripture's just so old, and it doesn't have anything to do with today, or, or you know, modern life, I, they obviously haven't read it. So, a land, a nation, and a blessing. What was to be, it's not in the verses, but most of you guys probably know this, what was to be the sign for this Abrahamic covenant? Not a nice ark, not a pretty rainbow. What was the sign? Circumcision, Circumcision. yeah. Enough said. Um, so God makes this covenant with Abraham. And we're going to see in the coming weeks how it took a little while for that to kind of take place. I hope to continue to kind of track this line because this basically starts the Jewish nation and also starts the line through which the promised Messiah will come. So the first person in this eventual line through which Jesus will come is Abraham. Key relationships here, or the key relationship here, very, very important concept. And when I was a kid, I just did not get it. I did not understand how, I mean, people in the Old Testament could not listen to just as I am. They could not walk down the aisle. How in the world are they saved? Who are we going to see in heaven? This was all very confusing to me. And so 
Way back here in Genesis 15, God sets up the requirement for salvation. And the requirement for salvation at any point in history is through faith. Not based on works, but based on faith. Who has Genesis 15, 5, and 6? He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and tell the stars, that thou be able to number them. He said unto them, So shall I see thee. Believe in the Lord and count it to him for righteousness. Thank you. So God talks to Abraham, he makes promises to Abraham, and this passage tells us that Abraham believed and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. God deemed him, declared him righteous on the basis of the fact that he believed God and believed that God would do what he said he would do. There's no works in this verse. There's no if you do this, if you do that. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so some might read that and be like, well, he was still just a good guy, you know, and he went when God said go. And so, and you know, he went through with the circumcision when he was really old. And so he must have been a dedicated guy. So that's why God saved him. No, it is completely on the basis of faith. And if we don't believe this passage, which of course we do, then we can look to Paul's description in Romans about how Abraham came to be saved. So there, one of you guys, one of you lucky members has a card that you, who's got that? With the Romans 1, 1 to 5. Okay, so at the end of like 1 to 5, then pause for a minute before you read 9 to 10, whatever. Uh, Romans 4. 1 to 5, yes sir. What then shall we say that Abraham, or the forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Thank you. We're going to pause right there. If Abraham had been considered righteous on the basis of his works, then he would have a right to boast about what he had done. So that's kind of the first take-home message with that passage, with that first section. Secondly, if Abraham was considered righteous on the basis of his works, it would be what he was due. It would not be a gift. It would be what he had worked for. If I go to work my three days a week and I clock in and clock out, it's not like I get my paycheck two weeks later and say, oh, you guys are so nice. I really appreciate the favor. I appreciate the gift. No, I worked for that paycheck. And if I work for that paycheck, it is my due. It is not a gift. It's not just been bestowed upon me. So if Abraham had worked for his salvation, it would have been what he was, ex what he was expecting and what he deserved. But he didn't work for it. He believed God, and that is why he was considered righteous. Go ahead with the uh, verse, still chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Thank you. So we already said the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham was circumcision. And God would expect Abraham and his descendants to be circumcised. But God declares Abraham righteous on the basis of his faith way back in Genesis 15. 
Abraham doesn't follow through with circumcision until Genesis 17 at the age of 99. So the, the, uh, Paul is basically telling us here, even if he was going to obey and there would be works involved on, you know, as he followed through on his faith, but it was his faith that saved him. And he was reckoned to be righteous before he ever took the act or, or, or um, proceeded with the act of circumcision. And then the very last part, uh, 4.16. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Thank you. In offering salvation by faith alone, we realize it is grace that's, that that it is by grace that we are given this gift, and it is available to all of us. If salvation were based on works, then it would be op only open to the Jews or those who followed the law, according to what Paul says here. But because it's on the basis of faith, in accordance with grace, it's open to all who believe. Um, so God sets it up, like I said, way back here in the Old Testament. Salvation is based on faith alone. Faith plus goose egg equals salvation. Goose egg meaning nothing. That's what my dad used to tell us when we were little. So salvation in the Old Testament came by believing what God said, believing that God would do what he said, and looking forward to a coming Messiah. The very first promise of that coming Messiah being found in Genesis chapter 3 at the curse of the serpent. And in the New Testament, salvation is still by faith looking back at the Messiah who came and, and seeing what he did and accepting his work on the cross as payment for our sins. So it's still always focused on the Messiah, looking forward or looking backward, but it's always based on faith. Does that make sense? That's a kind of a big concept to get a hold of, I think, just because it seems so easy. Um, questions, comments before we move on? Sometimes it's hard to have enough faith to have faith. To believe that's all that, that's all that's required. Yep. From Abraham, we're going to move on to Isaac, and Isaac was Abraham's very first son through Sarah. Not very first son ever, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, his very first son, and when Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, Abraham was a hundred, Sarah was ninety. Woo! And we're going to talk about what Abraham did. So here's the deal. Uh, God makes his covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham's like, all right. And so, you know, Sarah knows the deal, and time's passing, and more time's passing, and Sarah's just getting downright old, and she is not conceiving. And Abraham starts getting a little antsy. So Abraham jumps the gun while he's waiting on God to get around to fulfilling this Abrahamic covenant. And since Sarah isn't conceiving, he comes up with this great mastermind. He says, I know... I'm going to sleep with her Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar, and we'll just get this show on the road. So, of course, uh, while Sarah is, you know, still not conceiving, not conceiving, of course, Hagar conceives like that, and there is immediate tension in the Abraham household. I would not want to be Abraham in that scenario. So, through some circumstances involving tension and, and you know, like Sarah getting very upset, jealous, uh, Hagar flees. She, she flies the coop, and she's expecting... Abraham's first son. And so we're going to read, someone's going to read a passage in just a second. 
listen to this passage. I there's certain passages in scripture that I think say so much about our Lord and the fact that God would reach out to this seemingly insignificant woman, um, an Egyptian, probably didn't know a whole lot about the one true God. I mean, kind of a supporting character, if you would, in the in the story of the nation of Israel. But I love how compassionate God is to this woman. So who has Genesis 16, 7 to 14? I do. Okay. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the springs on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, her eyes made, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they, may, they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction, and he will be a wild donkey out of the man, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. For she said, have I, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir, Bir Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Berger. Thank you. So Hagar has this amazing encounter with what's identified in this passage as the angel of the Lord. Most Bible commentators uh, feel that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. The incarnation is when Jesus came to Bethlehem, born as a baby, lived 33 years, died on a cross, rose again, ascended to heaven. That was the incarnation. So a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ is when Christ comes to earth and interacts with an individual. And there's several um, accounts that we'll kind of touch on as we go through our highway of life, but this is one of them. And Hagar, again, even in probably her limited knowledge of the one true God, says near the end, how have I, like, have I remained alive after seeing God? She knows who he is. And she's like, how am I still here? But he, he gives her some promises. He tells her, you, you're pregnant with the son. His name will be Ishmael. He, too, will be the father of a great nation. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. Uh, I don't, uh, how does a mom respond to that? So he, there's going to be a lot of animosity in his life, a lot of uh, enmity between his brothers, and a lot of strife. But I just think it's so, I just think it's a very tender side of our Lord to, to reach out to this woman. So she returns back to Abraham's household and has Ishmael. Abraham is still thinking at this point that God will bring about the Abrahamic covenant through Ishmael. Who's got Genesis 17, 15 to 19? And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child. 
And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael went with before thee. And God said, No, that Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Thank you. I just think it's funny, like, God says to Abraham, okay, in case there was any confusion, your wife is Sarah, through your wife, I'm going to provide a great nation. You're going to be the father of a great nation. And he says, oh, what about Ishmael here? He's a great guy. And he says, no. God says, no, again, Sarah is the one. And I think it's neat that, you know, up to this point, everything's been focused on Abraham, that Abraham's the father, and Abraham's the important one, and it's through Abraham, and God makes it very clear, Sarah was a very key part of this arrangement as well. So it wasn't just any offspring that Abraham could muster, this was through his wife Sarah. And so he says, you are, your wife is going to conceive a child, you will have a son, his name will be Isaac, and God says, I will further this covenant that I've made with you, with him, and with his descendants. So, Sarah, yeah. I think if you go back to uh, Genesis 16.10, and it just struck me, I never paid attention. I've been through Genesis more than one time in BSF. But God told Hagar that the descendants would greatly be, great, great, would greatly be multiplied, but they were only called descendants. Whereas in chapter 17, God tells Abraham that descendants would be leaders of nations. Mm. And, and I never really discerned that's such a subtle difference. Right. But right. it's not a subtle difference when you think about it. Right. Nations, kings of peoples yes. will come from her. Right, right. Right. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a different, not almost class of people is, is almost what it sounds like. You're right. I don't think I even noticed that. It's great. Alrighty, so you got these two sons now, one Ishmael through Hagar, and this is another one of those where the Bible meets 2015. Because Abraham was hasty in bringing about God's uh, promise to provide a nation, he basically began the Arab race. Most Bible commentators and, and historians feel like at least a majority of the Arabs today can trace their lineage back to Ishmael. The other, now some claim Ishmael as father. Others claim um, descendants from Abraham and Keturah. Keturah was the wife that Abraham took after Sarah died. So from his liaison, if you will, with Hagar and later with his wife Keturah, those peoples made up the Arabs. Abraham's impatience in waiting on God's timing and his sin in sleeping with Hagar brought about the lifelong, generations-long arch enemies of his chosen people. I just find that so ironic. So the fact that Abraham, I mean, he probably thought, I'm just helping the Lord out here. I'm just getting this show on the road. But the ramifications that has even today in 2015, unbelievable. More questions about that? Comments? Yes, 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 yes. You just keep saying, you know, Abraham made the mistake, but it's, Sarah that couldn't wait. Right, well, right, right. But, you know, so Sarah says here about my hand, but he is still the one that God has made this covenant with. And so the fact that he is willing to say, yeah, let's get this show on the road, you know, I, it's, it's to me it's a little bit like the Adam and Eve. People say, you know, Eve, well, it really was Eve, but Adam was the one who was charged with 
the final responsibility. So that's so. Yes, yeah. He could have said, Sarah, you're crazy. Yeah. You know, but yeah, you're right. Is that what you're going to say too? It's really Sarah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. That's good. Oh, they're so good. Okay, so we're going to keep moving on. Uh, finally, Abraham gets it. It's going to be Isaac through his wife, Sarah. And finally, Isaac is born. And then just as he gets this promised son, then God asks him to do this crazy thing. So I should have titled this key event, not really sacrifice, but near sacrifice, because we know it didn't actually happen in Genesis 22. But God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son with Sarah. So some people wonder, do y'all remember going back to, like, I don't know, for those that grew up in church, Sunday school days, way back in the day, like, I am 45, but I remember some flannel graph. Somebody in this classroom has got to remember some flannel graph. And, you know, whenever I saw the flannel graph, you know, my teacher would put up of Isaac on the altar. I mean, he was like, you know, 7, you know, 10, carrying his little twigs or whatever. There's a lot of debate that he probably wasn't like 7. The word lad used in the original text here is a very flexible one, and it can indicate a child all the way from infancy to a young man who's not yet married. Even the um, people that, like the servants that accompanied Abraham and Isaac up the Mount Moriah uh, were also referred to using the same word lad, so I don't think that servants would be children. Obviously, Isaac was old enough to be weaned, and in, in biblical times, sometimes kids weren't weaned until closer to age five. And then we know that um, Isaac was 37 when Sarah died at the age of 127, so somewhere between five and 37 is when this took place. We don't know exactly. Um, what we do know is that Isaac had to be old enough to leave his mother, to trudge up the mountain with his father, carry some wood, and have like intellectual like conversation with his father. Yo, he's an animal. And so, um, you know, he most likely was a teen, an older child, teen, possibly even a young adult. And not that it matters a whole lot, but this wasn't some starry-eyed little kid that had no idea what was going on. It, you know, I, I would presume that you know this was not a completely unfamiliar scene to Isaac. Okay, so and we know the story, and we're going to actually read the passages in just a second. But we know that um, Abraham is willing to go through with it right up to the point that he's about to sacrifice, about to take Isaac's life. God stops him and that a ram is caught in the thicket, and that becomes the substitution for Isaac. So key event, sacrifice. We're going to see from this point on that sacrifice, animal sacrifice, becomes very important in the life of the nation Israel. Uh, the key relationship here is a type of Christ. Throughout Scripture, individuals, sometimes even objects or animals, can be considered a type of Christ, something that's a foreshadowing of what Christ would do when he came to earth as our Savior. And so the type of Christ in this story is not Isaac, but it's actually the ram. Now, if you go to, if you go home and get on your computer and Google similarities between Christ and Isaac, you will find, I mean, there were websites out the wazoo, you know, I mean, it was, you know, kind of silly, like, you know, number of letters and their names, whatever. But um, there are a lot of commentators that feel like there are a lot of similarities similarities between Isaac and Jesus. Um, but for this, our purpose of this study, the, uh, the substitutionary uh, sacrifice was actually the ram. Does that make sense? Who has uh, Genesis 22, 12 to 13? Anybody have that one? Did I not give that one out? 
And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the land, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Thank you. Who has uh, John one twenty nine? Anybody have that one? Yes. The next day, John sees Jesus coming on the wind. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Thank you. Um, just a similarity between the two. This ram is caught. Um, Abraham, you know, grabs him, basically puts him on the altar. And the key verse and or the key uh, wording in that passage is uh, he offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And so the fact that it was a ram or a lamb, a sheep, and that's why I had this other verse read too, that behold, the lamb of God. And we're going to talk a lot when we get to like the, uh, the tabernacle and sacrifices and how you know animal sacrifices were a very poor representation of what Jesus would one day do. They could cover temporarily, you know, only the blood of Jesus could, could deal with sin once and for all. But this is the first time we see a substitutionary death. And so um, just like the ram took Isaac's place on the altar, so Jesus took our place on the cross that we deserved for our sins so that we would not receive the punishment that we deserved. So the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice. So that is all I have for tonight.